For episode 9 of Talking Additive, we offer listeners a rare opportunity to gain insights from team members of a leading multinational architectural design firm, Cone Pedersen Fox, KPF. Over the past several years, KPF has engaged in a global internal pilot project in five major cities to explore the advantages associated with bringing clusters of 3D printers into its design studios. By making these tools accessible for architects and designers for daily use, the staff consistently discovers new opportunities for producing models, from context and research to massing and detail studies. And they are as likely as not to take these assets they produce directly into meetings with clients and other external stakeholders as well. Today on Talking Additive, we will speak with these team members to hear firsthand accounts of their approach to using 3D printed architectural models in many of their internal and external design and communication processes. KPF has standardized on 3D printing equipment, software, and practices, and has established fleets of printers accessible across their global footprint, opening doors to new design solutions that have been embraced widely by the firm, a benefit for designers of all experience levels. Cone Peterson Fox is a prominent multinational architectural firm. Since its foundation in 1976, the company has worked on some of the world's tallest towers and longest structural spans, with a portfolio featuring notable projects such as the Hudson Yards, quite recently in New York City, Roppongi Hills in Tokyo. Today I asked CIO and Principal James Brogan from the New York City office for KPF to provide a brief overview of the design firm to help set the stage for our story. Uh, my name is James Brogan. I'm with Cone Patterson Fox, K- KPF. I'm a principal with the firm and I'm the CIO. So I oversee technology strategy and implementation globally. It seems like you all are in every major market now introducing these amazing buildings and transforming cityscapes, introducing all these mixed-use spaces that are really interesting. How do you describe KPF? Well, I would say what sets us apart is our focus on the client, on really producing the highest quality design in regards to the client's needs and to their business aspirations. So we really focus on, first and foremost, the aspirations of of why we're even designing this project. And and I should, you know, quickly add this could be a building, it could be a campus of buildings, it could be an airport terminal of, of, of 20 million square feet, or it could be a, a number of city blocks in Shenzhen or Shanghai or, or Hong Kong. But it's it's really that kind of focus on on the client's aspirations. The context context is extremely important. It's something that we focus on really even before creating that that distinctive design project. We look at the context and being sensitive to pedestrian flow and scale and the environment and just the the kind of tenor of the city life or the the context of of the project. So, So it's being sensitive also to context, so the client, context, and then as, as I was saying, the ultimate highest design quality. So we we want to use the best materials, the best ideas, and we have a real rigor in exploring uh, those kind of the best solutions for the, the challenges at hand. James Brogan has been at KPF for the past 20 years and has overseen many of the investigations into 3D printing and additive manufacturing that have taken place from technology to technology. 
KPF takes pride in its multidisciplinary, iterative design process. FFF Additive Manufacturing enables the firm to create multiple iterations of architectural designs, which can then be used to convey key concepts to clients. KPF has incorporated clusters of 3D printers into its offices around the world, and staff are now able to produce models early in the design process. To help provide some context for New York City's 3D makerspace, and in parallel the role of the model shop in KPF's London location, we stop in with Kobus, the Director of Applied Research at KPF from London. I'm Kobus Botmer. You know, I work at Competition Fox Associates, been there since 2008. I'm a director based in London, and I'm also overseeing the applied research effort globally with the rest of the teams all over the world, our nine offices. For the clarity of the listeners, at KPF, globally, we work really as one big office. We don't work as nine separate offices. So when we work on a task or something, we very much include at least one or two other offices. And at the moment, there's a lot of collaboration between London and New York being the two main offices and also involved with much of the design work. If you take the method of us using 3D printing as a way to communicate our designs and develop our designs and fine-tune our designs and then eventually make models because the making of the actual presentation model is not always the means to the end of, of 3D printing, you know, we really try and hone down and develop, uh, as you know, the processes so that if I'm sitting in London working on a project in China, I can actually send a model to Hong Kong and there is no barriers or limitations they can produce the print immediately and take it to the client and, and vice versa. We can really communicate the, the sort of physicality of making across our, our offices. And, and this is because we work very hard on understanding the technologies to adopt, how to change that or infect it, uh, and then deploy it properly to the actual designers in our process of design. We will return to speak further with James and Kobus, along with Ross Page, head of model making from the London-based KPF Model Shop, in the second half of this program. I'm Matt Griffin, and this is Talking Additive, a 3D printing podcast made possible by Ultimaker. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business innovators and allies to discuss the impact of adopting additive manufacturing. How does adopting additive manufacturing benefit a business today? and what will be possible in the future. Welcome to our ninth episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays, every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, and materials that enable professional designers and engineers to innovate every day. Its global team of over 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to digital distribution and local manufacturing. Our primary interview today is with Asli Oni, Digital Fabrication Manager at KPF's New York offices. She has played a key role in expanding the use of FFF 3D printing technology within KPF over the past couple of years and explains how this low-cost, efficient method of producing scale models allows architects to bring their latest digital iterations into physical form in parallel to the entire sequence of design. My name is Asli One. I work in Cone Pedersen Fox Architecture Firm in New York, and I am the digital fabrication manager running the KPF Makerspace. The Makerspace is an innovative model making space where architects can digitally fabricate KPF designs. And my role is to always uh, lead the firm and designers towards innovative digital fabrication processes and automating and optimizing 
our seamless workflows, representing the beauty of our work, showcasing architectural making in details and materiality. So what was your background in architectural models before joining KPF? I took design classes through my architectural program. They always required this full semester of developing models. So throughout that whole semester, we would go through the development of your site context, your massing model, the design phases and the detailed section models by hand. Even though I studied an architectural technology driven curriculum, we always started with that traditional analog model making method, like formal gestures with clay or form, Bristol paper, you know, that we fold in these origami methods. During my study, I also aligned with the computational design and fabrication pathway that throughout doing research and projects and competitions in additive, subtractive, and robotic fabrication processes, we were able to design at big scales as well and build at big, big scales. When I joined, I walked into this amazing makerspace with so many Ultimaker machines. I was astonished and I realized, yes, this is, this is that making space at this global level. And my quick observation was that the 3D printers were not being used at their maximum potential. At the time, the New York office was phasing out powder printing and the FFF technology was becoming more accessible to the office with its easy digital making capabilities. So with learning sessions and project-based customization sessions, like these one-to-one -one learning sessions, we immediately moved from a beginner's level to an intermediate level of making in digital fabrication for most of the firm. And now everyone in the firm globally has access to Cura and access to 3D printing. So it has been a, a trend in, in use since the start. I think it's a part of learning sessions that, you know, allows growth. So it's a good trajectory of trend. What are the learning sessions at KPF? All entities in, in KPF have learning sessions and the makerspace carries their own learning sessions. Within a calendar year, we will always keep the studios updated with learning sessions. So when we have general ones, they're firm-wide regarding software upgrades or new methods that we implemented. But mostly learning sessions are super essential when it's project-based and they're customized sessions. So it's usually a kickoff for a project regarding fabrication processes and, and standards at the beginning of the project when we meet them. And we talk about all the details that we see in these renderings and drawings, and we customize those sessions. So there'll be one-to-one -one sessions strictly talking about all the characteristics of that project specifically. And the reason why we do this is because not one project is similar to the other. The approach, the materials, they never are the same. So the experience, the settings, the applications eventually bring them to a level of skills where they're at an intermediate level and they're able to produce on their own. But until that point, customized sessions are what's working with the firm. Uh, that's an incredible uh, resource to be offering to designers and architects mm -hmm. there. It's actually interesting because, you know, what sets us apart in the digital fabrication field compared to the other industries that use, you know, digital fabrication to produce their output, most of the industries have this rapid prototyping method. They have one locked in object and they'll just mass produce something. But for our production, we are producing different things every day, different details every day. So it has to be customized. That's a pretty interesting challenge in 3D printing 
because you have such a high volume Definitely. of prints coming through all the print farms there. But unlike, say, a manufacturing aid scenario or uh, really an engineering firm, every project is mm -hmm. different. Like almost every single model is yeah. different, at least a new iteration. Mm -hmm. And yeah, in engineering, there's more components involved, so many details. I, I, I bet you their workflow is a lot more intense, more customized. <laughs> Tell me more about your role at KPF. What are you looking to facilitate within the makerspace? For my role and my main facilitation is innovative and seamless making processes from digital to analog methods and constantly expanding on our digital fabrication technologies and knowledge for our studios. So always setting a standard and improving on that standard once a new technology or a new method is introduced. I invest time for research and applications of automating our tools for our mundane tasks. There will be a project that could last for one to 10 years. When you are on one project, you do have repetitive tasks. In our line of work, there are many teams and they all have different design approaches and they have different material applications and you know features and gestures and et cetera. So they are all customized conversations. So if we automate those mundane tasks, it supports the designers. They have different strategies that need to be implemented. So, you know, facilitating the simplicity of, of seamless making processes, whether it's through that software, it's hardware, or even through the post-processing that my colleague Darwin Diaz and I, we're constantly responding in ways to facilitate that whole fabrication process. So given your studies, what can you tell listeners of Talking Additive about the use of architectural models? How are 3D printed models continuing a tradition? And how are they introducing things uh, that are new for the first time? It hasn't changed this design process. It's been sketching, drafting, iterating, and then you circle around that until the ultimate design is reached. Uh, the design drawings that are produced, they are at a certain scale that are really small scales that fit on certain paper sizes. And those drawings are then converted into shop drawings. And shop drawings uh, are really for making and building. So shop drawings back then were what the model makers or the fabricators would use as templates to cut their elements and build the models. So that was your typical workflow in the past. Today, in the computational era, where computer is our tool to draft these drawings. They're digital, so they're faster, they're parametric, they're automated in this CAD software that you could instantly add a third dimension. So our job, um, it's the same process of drafting and iterating, but faster process. Since we're gaining more time, we have more time to iterate more options for our clients and exercise our, our minds with more ideas. The tradition of a 3D printed or 3D visualized object is still in our practice, but now we're just representing a different output. It's a solid geometry practice that applies to digital fabrication, a more robust, a more detailed, more precise object, in my opinion, that has allowed the architectural industry to adapt and benefit from quick digital design details, translated and easily generated. So I think the tradition still continues to be presentation at the 3D level. It's just there's two different practice methods right now. 
and we're just digital and we're faster and capable. Walk us through the story of how a team might use the 3D printers for their projects. So once a project starts, a designer will start that site context analysis based on the site that is part of this project and starting the mock-up of the allotted buildable space for the projects with maybe like building block objects. There are two types of models uh, that are typically this contextual site models, and they will be either topological landscapes or they would be urban city blocks. So there are two different strategies when those two approach us. We would drive them in those paths, whichever one they are. But they're completely different. One is uh, the urban city blocks are a completely uh, easy build. But when it comes to suburban landscapes, you have to have an artistic approach to it and maybe a KPF approach to it. But the second mission is that we would focus on the massing and start creating iterations of certain schemes might be a handful, it might be a dozen, whatever our iterations are, our outputs are from whatever keywords we've received from those meetings, we would offer those iterations back to the client. So those models, once they're generated, they will go back to the client. If the client falls in love with them, they even keep those models. When we come back to the office and we just regenerate an already fabricated model, we just have to say print again. And that's wonderful. And then the process of elimination happens after that once we have like a bunch of schemes and we need the client to lock into one. So we just expand on that final model. So a 3D model will be generated each time and presented to that client until that final model has been chosen. Then we go into scale and we start zooming into certain areas and start designing those moments. Once the design phase is in process, then we start seeing updates on the the facade details and maybe lobbies or observation decks, public spaces. Each of these moments that we are generating through the drawings, we're producing the physical models. They, They can now happen instantly. We don't have to complete a model and then send it to 3D print. We could progress at a certain point and see where we fall and what that physicality feels like with those changes that we made. So the response and the output is how the teams get their response back because they are used to, now that 3D printing is so accessible, they're used to seeing what their designs of 3D physicality gives. So these meetings, they are weekly or bi-weekly meetings. So that, that, that turnaround is super fast. And to have a 3D printing access that has The same speed of turnaround as fast as we work is actually wonderful. We have more to offer. We have more to talk about. And that's your general pipeline. Of course, there's more to this list, but this is like a general overall. What does it mean for designers and architects to have such access to 3D printing technology at the design studio? In the past, we had heard that in a lot of firms, they're used to having parts made for them. And this seems to go absolutely the other way. In our case, it fundamentally eliminates a lot of in-between tasks for a job to be produced externally. So you would have to set up this type of purchase order. Now we have complete control over every single feature that is in that production process. We have access to choose whichever material that we need and, and instantly make our models with whatever type of material or settings or quality we need. And so the entire customization control is in our hands. Another obvious support that 3D printing is bringing to the studios is the fact that we generate 
as fast as we design. I quickly make iterations and generate a new model in seconds. And having a technology that could produce something alongside our fast-paced digital modeling workflow, our production technology is actually at that same pace. So let's go into the ways that 3D printing is used within KPF. Let's break this down into the types of models and the goals that designers and architects have for these I'm models. I'm going to just briefly go through the general ways that 3D printing is used within KPF. Obviously, there are subcategories that pertain to certain projects, but the general idea is that there's a site context and how does KPF use 3D printing for site models? We are really interested in explaining what that landscape looks like. And with the conventional, traditional architectural models that are always white, you really don't see the language of the, the landscape unless you add some color or texture to it. So we've understood that within the past about two years. And now when we generate our topological landscapes, we make sure to add the details of the context, the convex moments and the concave moments and where you have water tables. So these type of details at the site context level are super essential when we start using dual extrusion. So you could start to add those textures and those visuals onto these objects. For example, we printed this beautiful landscape model that had alternating contour lines with like two different hues of green it really looks realistically amazing. So going outside that traditional box sometimes helps our 3D printing methods at KPF. With massing models, they're just talking about that buildable space. The details are not there yet, right? So it's just like this blank canvas with area to, to draw on. So the architect will red mark those changes on the model. And that's your new method of annotating your notes. So of course, we still do annotate drawings, but if we're talking at the massing level, now today you could just take that massing model and make your changes with your marker and give that to the designer and have them edit that in the software. I, I really love that. You'd mentioned when we had talked about this before that you'd seen a discussion looking at a massing study that has a cantilever and the people gathered in the meeting just just break the cantilever off and say, hey, let's just take this feature off and see what happens. So they snap it off the model. And you could glue it back on, which is great. So if you didn't like your mistake that you made, you could alter it where if it was a powder print, the, the behavior is different. Even clients are discovering ways to use the model as a tool of communication. The story that you mentioned came straight from the client's meeting. I heard this from our team members, and I've never heard that before where you break off a piece. But yeah, it, it actually works because at that table, they wanted to convey an idea. And these type of models are being used now as this tool, not just as a canvas, but as your, your chopping block. Oh, that's really great. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that image. It's so funny that you, you look back in in history of additive manufacturing for prototyping. And for the longest time, when, when 3D models were so expensive, when one of these models might be $100, now they're like 90 cents or something. The idea of being really rough on these models, like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. But the purpose of those models was to play with ideas. And it seems like it's only just now as printing architectural models is affordable. In fact, it's cheaper than a lot of the 2D full color prints that are made at the same time for that, that project's history. 
it, it, it seems that now it really is that canvas where you can t- try ideas and be less precious with it and really accelerate the discussion. Definitely. I mean, it is a low cost production method and the architects know how accessible this technology is that, yeah, you're able to use these objects as your new tool. This is the new tool that is on the tables now. What else comes in play is that since we know that we could produce so fast and it is a cheap production method now that we could leave those models with the client where back then we would have to carry that back. So imagine you carrying like a $15,000 model that has been powder printed back then. You would make sure to bring that model back to the office. But now maybe that same model could be generated for maybe a thousand percent less. And at the end of the day, you could leave the model with the client, which is what we actually enjoy now. Having the client have access to this technology is sharing the knowledge of this technology too. So they come back with ideas as well. So it's a great incentive once that model sits on that client's table. And then we have the concept models, right? In this conceptual phase, you start seeing gestures, you start seeing influence from the site. So the model starts to change from massing to something close to the research and the development of the project, the reason of the project. And these concepts could come from 10 different directions. It could be because it was influenced by the people or the surrounding buildings or the site's landscape. So whatever that conceptual influence was, you will have a bunch of iterations explaining those concepts. And sometimes the concepts become a hybrid at the end. Sometimes the client will fall in love with a concept. It depends on what it is, but at the end, a concept study model would be not one model. It would be numerous models and numerous options for the client. And the client would go through that and ultimately picks a scheme, which is a schematic phase of model making. You would go back to the client with the schemes and then the client would pick their final choice. And once that choice is locked in, the detailed model phase will start. And a detailed model is when the renderings that are in finished mode, because uh, renderings are usually ahead of the game for storytelling, renderings will start to reflect what the 3D physicality is, meaning glass will look like glass, um, metal will look like metal properties, and we will start adding more building details and design gestures and where you start seeing materials and human figures for skill comparisons and really connecting to the model. You also have another study called detailed sections. Anything that is detailed is close to buildable state. So a detailed section allows you to really zoom into a special architectural moment. And then you could start to see those details of that realistic environment with, again, the materials. Maybe this time it's like more trees, plants, human figures, cars, really uh, making this like almost like a a miniature movie set or full-scale movie set, real details where we really understand the feeling and that environment and and it feels real. So we model every detail. At that point, this design is locked in. So now we're just solving structural solutions. We are collaborating with engineers and and construction firms for that project. Then discussions start to occur about structural design options and choices. So a phase after details have been done for the, the visuals of it, you could also have studies in the structural area, depending on your scope. So that becomes really interesting where you start to 
produce full scales because structural models really are maybe in half scale or full scale discussions. So the, the construction firm or the engineer firm would want to see these objects in full scale. And you would also have a phase maybe of, and this is totally separate from all the methods that I just mentioned, but there is a rapid prototyping phase that we go to as well when we're in this structural moment where we test components and we could print objects at a micronic level or at a full scale level. There is a range depending on what that scale is. But here it's about using real materials, doing analysis of its physicality and watching its integrity and delivering that to the engineers for them to test its its physical properties. So these collaborations are visual is not just for the 3D visual visualization is not just for us, for architects to really study what we've designed and make sure we're making the right decisions, but it's also to convey them to the client and have them accept it, love it or change it. So that's it. Let's talk about the field as a whole. Do you see 3D printing as widely adopted elsewhere as you see happening at KPF? Yes. Today I do see small firms, large firms adapting to their office and workflows with FFF printing. Those that don't have access to build a digital fabrication process in their firm, they find a way to outsource that production today. So you could have those third-party entities printing it for you. So there is implementation or external access to it. Truly, it is the new way of 3D model representation in the architectural industry. And with so many firms using this technology, I hope to start seeing and learning from my colleagues, from other firms, how they customize their workflows. And if, if they share their innovative making methods, we could start learning from each other, architectures, designers, makers, builders. We should all be sharing our knowledge establishing a huge open source network through this adopted technology. And that will give us this access to improve altogether, rise as a whole industry. Thinking as a whole, AEC network, which is architecture, engineering, and construction fields, is currently testing printing for these livable modules, real one-to-one -one scales. And they're trying to evolve that technology. We are very interested in the next five years what this full-scale 3D printing for livable spaces will become. We really need to dig deeper and implement these machines within the production strategy. Maybe they become part of the architecture. Maybe they are the bots of the building to constantly grow. <laughs> I know you're going to call me uh, a bit sci-fi here, but 3D printing, widely adapting as a whole in the future, that's where I'd want to see it for maybe 15, 20 years know that additive fabrication is a tangible workflow, right? But it's about materialization. It's about building technologies and how structural systems come together. Architects really need to understand the 3D printing technology and see how they could hybrid all the methods of practice and implement it in this technology. There are many schools, firms already in the practice of this. This is just me summarizing what's happening out there. But we will see in the next five years more influence on the full-scale 3D printed livable spaces. I think it's really interesting. And it's amazing that some of the, the work that you were mentioning in academic programs around architecture is where some of this experimentation is happening. They're using desktop 3D printing as a component of learning how this might work at the large scale. So it'd be interesting to have the same discussion in five years. So... With that said, 
it seems like 3D printing is playing a huge role across a lot of stuff that is happening, at least the design practice aspects of communication and, and helping studio designers forward their ideas. So that leads me to a key question. How would KPF accomplish these goals without 3D printing? What if all the machines went away? No, I don't want to answer this question. I think if machines went a wire and we didn't have any type of printing technology, I would say in order to generate this architect's work at a certain scale, and these are all small scales, and I mentioned you could even work in a micronic levels, super small uh, scale as well. If we don't have the 3D printing technology, which I don't know, I sat and thought about this question for five minutes because 3D printing technology also resembles CNC technology and laser cutting technology. So if you think of that whole realm of digital fabrication not existing, then we're in big trouble where we have to go back to our traditional methods of using clay because clay is very easy to sculpt, very easy to dry, um, not a lot of shrinkage um, involved if you're not baking it. So that was a, a material that was favorable for massing, the massing phase and whatnot. But when it comes to the time when we actually need to do detailed models, then it's back to the analog cutting block with your exacto knife and your rulers and your templates for cutting these parts. Through this whole industry from the 80s till today, there is a fine line between 80s and 2000 with the analog making and from 2000 till today with the digital so I hope that day doesn't come, but we would have to go back to our old methods. That sounds intense. I mean, thinking about the numbers of iteration, it, it just, it, the scale of it, it sounds like most of that would go away. Where would you like to see 3D printing technology, machine, software, and materials evolving to in the coming years to better suit the needs of architects and designers? There are filament makers that are generating new composites now. So we're at a point where uh, the range of materials are, are vast. I think our range where we are for desktop printing is a beautiful, intense range. I'm interested in the aspects of material consumption more now for 3D printing technology, where we need to focus on being more sustainable. So how do we close the loop you know, not just at my firm level, which is, is a huge, you know, investment. What about the national level and the global level of recycling this material and being more sustainable about our consumption? I don't have a problem with our library of options of materials, but I do have a problem with how we're consuming it. Hopefully we could get together and create a, a large network that could be more sustainable. Um, when it comes to software, as advancing to the cloud level that allows project management. We are moving to a more unified platform and that allows us to look across our, our network. For example, I would love to send a print job from our office in New York to China and I'm able to do that without logging on their network and that's super essential. So having a seamless access is key and that should be a huge asset to the users. So software, is advancing with configurations in the way that you could target whatever you want, wherever you want. There might be a day where we might just um, not edit anything in a CAD program and just, you know, manage everything in a slicing software. And the machines, I would love to see some improvements, you know, in the 
technology overall towards automation only. I think the machines today have robust settings and for a firm like ours that has 450 employees and about 25 machines, these machines are running 24-7. And I'm astonished by the way that we don't have to offline a machine for a few days and send it to maintenance. I've been in this firm for two and a half years and these machines have been working nonstop since then. They've never stopped. The technology has not let me down. We physically have to be there less to manage the machine while it's in production or, you know, monitor the machine while it's in production. So I would love to see more improvements towards automation. We should all invest in some time to improve the automation part of it as architects, designers, the FFF um, network. All together, collaboratively, yeah, we need a little bit more intelligence and not rely on human interaction to detect printing problems. Machines today have sensors mostly to detect material outage, which is essential, but there are more issues for a print job to fail. These days, they get more complex, especially on our side. So addressing them, for example, using the internal camera inside the, the build space that we use as a monitoring device. We could use it also as an AI recognition tool to trace the layers that are badly built. And the machine could instantly pause based on that recognition. And then um, we could you know, save these jobs that might create more problems. So I think this is a fundamental issue across the FFF technology. Asley, thank you so much for joining today for Talking Additive. This is really helpful and really illuminates the architecture world for Talking Additive uh, listeners. Thank you so much. This is Matt Griffin, host of Talking Additive, Ultimaker's 3D printing podcast. Through interviews with top innovators, partners, and allies, this series offers a chance to learn from those who have experienced firsthand the impact of additive manufacturing. Let's keep this conversation going, just like the 3D printing labs all across the world that have remained open and fully operational during these complicated times. Enjoy our show? We'd appreciate it if you would post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. Thank you. I joined master model maker Ross Page at KPF in London via Zoom call. My name is Ross Page and I'm the head of model making at KPF uh, in London. So I run the London model shop, uh, making all kinds of scales and finishes of models. Uh, so first of all, thank you very much for meeting. I have heard your name evoked for years when interacting with folks at KPF about Already? your long wow. history in the model <laughs> shop there and your your expertise. And so I'm really excited. To, it's it's um, good to talk to you. <laughs> uh, and, and of course, yeah, the model shop has evolved enormously over the years. I mean, I first came to KPF in 1995, which is a long time ago now. Uh, and when I started in the London office, there were probably 50 odd people in the London office. And the model shop was literally one guy working at a drawing board, making card models essentially he had a very small workshop uh, a little bandsaw and disc sander and and that was the model shop at kpf you know up until that point i think kpf had sort of bought models in as as you regularly do more at the end of the design process you bring in a model a presentation model for the client getting the in-house model shop was a big step and a brave step and i think it immediately meant you've got the ability to create things which are part of the design process and not just reflecting the design process. You can react much more instantly 
to, to any design change. It's much more collaborative, and it's not then just presentation models, it's sketch models, uh, very quick turnaround competition models, and you, you can make quite artistic, quite detailed in some respects, but abstract in others. Models of things which actually there's not a great deal of drawing or finished articulated design. You might get literally sketches to build something from. And obviously you can create something then which speaks of the design without so much input from the designers. Things have changed immensely over the years, obviously, with the onset of drawing. And when I say drawing, I mean CAD drawing. Laser cutters have come in. On top of that, you've then got, obviously, 3D printing has come along much later. We've used rapid prototyping processes since probably about 2004, so for a very long time. But we just used bureau services, so everything was farmed out, which obviously was very good. But the problem with that is, of course, control and, and being able to input your own creativity into it and what you wanted for the model you, you didn't tend to use it so much because you had that lag time of things going out and then waiting for things to come back and obviously the onset of design that we have now the onset of 3d printing and and uh, digital fabrication in-house means that you can react very very quickly to things we now have and we have had for some time a fully kitted out workshop for both traditional model making techniques laser cutting obviously the full gamut of, of professional model making if you like and within that we also have in the london office we have a nine ultimaker printers which the architects use and they use a lot but we also in the model shop use them a lot we tend to use them more for components of finished models but we also print things for the architects and the architects print a lot of block massing models or design iterations of the schemes as they want to see them. It gets used very much within the office by everybody. And I think in the very early days of desktop 3D printing with Ultimakers, within the model shop, there was a kind of, well, is this just going to be something the architects use for sketch modeling? And that kind of takes over from where our sketch modeling using styrofoam and cardboard would have been but in actual fact i i think as often is the case as the as these things develop and as the tools develop and the techniques develop we've used it more and more ourselves it's very much an integral part of the thing we do so it's, it's very good from that point of view when you say components i mean are you using it for like things like kit bashing where you're producing elements that you will incorporate into other design or are you using it for like armature are you making structural or functional elements? Oh. Both, both really, yeah, absolutely. So I, it's interesting. I mean, obviously we, we can print the full scheme to a certain level of detail. The architects tend to do that a lot themselves and we tend to use it more in the way you said, so for structural components, but also for kit bashing, making certain elements of the model. You know. It very much de depends on the model that we're making the level of finish required, the, the nature of the building itself. If it's very rectilinear, if it has very, very fine facade work, we might go down the route of using photo etchings or other techniques. What it really is, it's, it's all about making the toolbox as big as possible, isn't it? And the Ultimakers are a tool. And I kind of say to people, don't just see them as, a, as an end in themselves. You can use them that way. 
but to get the most out of them, think of them also as a, as a tool in the toolbox. Very much like laser cutters, SLA printers, vacuum formers, all the other things that we have and we can use. Put them all together and then that's you use the best process for, for what we're doing. So. What would you point to as a key to really understand what's possible with architectural models? Oh, <laughs> um, you couldn't do better than look at an awful lot of architectural models that are out there and that exist. Look at the processes that have been used. Look at the way they've been built. Learn, you know, that a lot of what we do is designing the model. You know, you take the building that has been designed and then you design the model for the, for that building, you know. So look at the way those things have been done in the models you can find and you can see. But then also, I would say, get back to basics. Actually, obviously, don't discount 3D printing and, and CAD work. That's fantastic, you know, and it's what we all use. But pick up a knife and a, and a pen and a piece of cardboard and start making things like that and, and actually give yourself a, a time scale to do it in, which means you can't, you can't just create a labor of love. But give yourself a time scale, which means you have to cut out all the extraneous stuff. And then you'll begin to learn what the core of the model is and what it is you're trying to show with that model. I think that's, that's the best advice I could give, I think. And now let us return to my discussion with Cobus. So what role does 3D printing play within the architectural practice for KPF? 3D printing is uh, it's, it's bordering the point of picking up a pencil and sketching. Right? I mean, uh, we print many of our models. So when you look at the design process, there's a huge exploration part in the beginning that is very fast-paced, uh, very intensive, where we analyze our sites. We're trying to inform what should be built on site relating to program and massing and volume, You know how it affects daylight, how it affects visibility, views, all that kind of stuff. And we sometimes use um, uh, generative processes for that. So we will be running multi multi-variations and cluster them down to the best performing ones. But it is really a point where a designer can actually look at a rendering and pick up a a, a model, even that is a, even if it's a very simplistic model, maybe just a white print or a, a, a you know a two color print or something like that, that they start understanding the, the intent of the design. So in the early stages, there is an incredible amount of these simple prints in a way, these uh, block model prints uh, that happen, and we print many of them. And of course, you know. All the ones that are discarded, you know, we have a recycle policy for that. And we're looking at the various different methods of recycling uh, that is more in-house bound to be able to u- reuse the materials. So just a no- note on that, because we are very uh, um, focused on sustainability and sustainable practice. Um, but the, the communication happens completely, you know, through through a method of design, screen grabs, renderings, sketches, and 3D prints. It is a continuous update, and we can continuously look at prints. We sometimes even draw on the prints and sketch on the prints, you know, to try and explain one person's uh, intent in the design to somebody else that might be executing the design or, you know, sort of the the sort of typical kind of brainstorm scenario. Um, And that's one of our tools that we do use. And then when we progress to sort of more uh, development of the design, we'll be looking at uh, more detailed prints. and again, the process changes scale in the changes from a, a bigger mass model to a 
more detailed podium uh, or a, a lobby entry or a facade component or something like that. So we start printing these these parts and information. And then at some point, these parts and information will become subparts to a bigger model that's being fabricated by the model shop, for example. So it's this kind of progression of pure block model to detail model to becoming a part of a even more detailed model that is has much more of a human inter, 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 interjection to it. And then, you know, at, at the end, it, it may even be that we, we print a final model or presentation model information if we do those models in-house. And, but, it, you know, as, as a design exploration, it is one of the methods of communication. And, and design communication is one of the major things that, that is required inside an architectural or design practice. You need to be able to take what you want to do and think should be done on the site uh, with the analytics of the site and explain that or convey that to your audience be that a fellow design uh, colleague or uh, you know, a, a senior on the project or your client. Uh, and printing is, uh, 3D printing is, is one of the methods we do. It, it's, it's, it's integral to our business. I, I w- wonder what your thoughts are about how these models relate to other visual practices as architecture firms have shifted more and more to building in 3D. As a business, we are under continual pressure to produce. We often talk about the fact that, you know, a few years ago, we had a week or two weeks just to sketch ideas and come up with something great and amazing. Where sometimes now we have client meetings every week, which gives us a two-day cycle to do some work because there's the cycle of design, there's a cycle of production, there's a cycle of presentation. And while the one side is, is very true, and we'll get to that in a second, our ability to use digital tools to generate models and um, options based on analytical data, based on uh, intuitive design and creative design thinking, or whatever means we may be, may be doing, you know, we can run till 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night and come back the next morning and really evaluate our work in a physical form. Now, as it may sound that while well, we're just doing digital reproduction physically, we wouldn't have had that in the past with without these technologies. And I think that's the important part to note, that we can have physical models the next morning when we get back into the office, evaluate and make clear and conscious decisions at, this, at the stage of design where it's needed. Getting back to the other side of it, I think the interaction with humans and technology is developing and going to grow an effect where we are going to go back almost in a way of how we used to design and the process we are grappling with now of production of 3D to print and so forth is going to become something that is hidden, that is not visible that much anymore, which I hope is the fact that we are going to pick up a pencil again in the future and sketch, maybe not on paper, but on tablets, and to be able to extract what we sketch as information into an actual model, where we can take clay or paper or whatever medium it is we may find. Uh, maybe it's some sort of foam that bend in a funny way or something like that, or, or being cut by a wire in a certain manner, and start exploring those shapes again. Not, not that we're not doing it now, but you know, as I mentioned, I think we are more in the digital process a little bit now, and that has taken a little step back. But I think, as you mentioned, that is slowly moving forward. And at the point where the 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 technology and the craft is going to meet, we're going to, we're going to really use these tools. I use a, a sometimes an example of practices in the 80s and before where you had an architect and you had a technician. And the architect was really the designer and the technician was there to produce the drawings. Nowadays, we walk in an office and the architect is 
both the designer and the technician in, in various methods, whether it's a 2D production or a 3D model that needs to be modeled. But their design capability is so infused with the method of making the designs in a virtual model or so forth, that it's slightly distracting in some cases. And it's difficult. It's not, you know, these, these softwares we use are, are very complex. And I think the aim in the future or the goal in the future is for technology to become the technician, mm. not to replace physical technicians, but where, where everything that is in a book or a code that can get automated or is production orientated is done by the machine. You know, whether that is a machine learning algorithm or a method of auto printing or whatever the case is. And the designers are moving back into the realm of sketching and designing and experiencing with the added advantage. And this is as I started this conversation now of us to be able to physically interact with what we are coming up with much quicker uh, and, and more iterative to get data back out from what we are doing. So I have an explicit question that I, I <laughs> need to always ask. How do you feel that FFF technology has been of benefit to the KPF um, architectural design practice? But as I mentioned earlier, we are on extreme uh, fast track design uh, projects at the moment with less and less people, less and less staff. Uh, on those projects um, uh, because the budget and the client and, and just general economies and, and, and world factors and so forth. But our ability to to explore and keep pushing the boundaries of design that we are kind of known for, you know, really making sure that we get across something unique for a specific site, we need to explore. And if we needed uh, 40 hours in the past but only have 16 hours now, how do we do that, right? I mean, we, we cannot spend 40 hours because we actually have to meet certain deadlines that are prescribed or agreed upon. And and there are various factors and methods of technologies as well as just general methods of design that we use to enable this. But 3D printing is definitely one of them. They need certain output, right? They need visualization, they need immersion, and they need physicality of things and materiality of things. So they can actually look at it, feel it, pick it up, and again, the mind and the actual physicality and the mind and the visualization, the mind and the single line will connect itself to actually understand, is this something I should be doing or how should I change it or develop it further or, or, or solve a problem with it and so forth. So it really becomes a, 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 a critical tool for us to just because of our time and, and our, our, our processes and our ability to push design at very much the early stages as a uh, accelerator to, to making big decisions. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today. This conversation has been a really rich resource. For our final interview, let's return to KPF CIO and Principal James Brogan in New York City. We at KPF were, were always very uh, heavily focused on th 3D modeling, that is computer-generated 3D modeling. So very early on, we were doing everything in 3D on the computer, first with MicroStation in the 90s. And then when, right after I started, we moved to Rhino. Our Rhino was just, just introduced probably a year, a year before that. And we really emphasized designing in 3D. The, the 3D model was, a, a, again, computer model, was a really important part of the process. And you can, one can see this natural evolution from the clay model from the 80s and 90s to the digital uh, computer model was a, a natural one. So it became extremely important very early on. And many of the of the teams designed in 3D in, in one way or another. So it's, uh, you know, kind of moving or migrating from the 
the, the 3D analog model to computer model. And then as you can see, the natural extension is, is 3D printing, which we can get into in a moment. I'm curious at what time you started exploring professional desktop. Oh, yeah. And uh, bring in uh, yet a new technology. Right, right. Uh, FFF, fused filament fabrication. Right. <laughs> well, we continue to explore technologies. And to be honest with you, it, it was a bit frustrating because there just didn't seem to be options that were appropriate for us. But there still was that disconnect. I mean, they were in- interesting products and they, they produced you know, interesting uh, models. But there still wasn't that fluidity, so to speak, from design to model. Like that's what I was really looking for, this this kind of smooth process. Doing five iterations in Rhino to seeing them in a physical model. So we continue to explore these technologies. And in parallel, we're looking at all the desktop options. We went we went through a lot of them, and frankly, they just all fell over. I mean, they just could not handle what we were asking them to do. I mean, essentially, they were consumer-grade machines for the, for the most part. I mean, they may not have seen themselves as consumer-grade machines, but they were, generally speaking, consumer-grades. But we could not find a solution. And honestly, this went on for years. And while we kind of continued with Z-Core, we had two Z-Core machines, more machines in-house, we continued, where's that desktop machine that could fulfill this vision of one on every desk, and, you know, which is, of course, an exaggeration, but there should be 3D printers sprinkled throughout the studio or just really easy, easy access. So to cut, cut to the chase, you know, we, we have been, had been exploring desktop machines for a number of years and could not find one that produced an, an excellent result and one that was stable and had a, a, the the time it took to print was was reasonable, and really wouldn't break down, quite frankly. So it was always our vision to have the desktop printer replace these larger machines. By the way, we were doing sometimes upwards of two hundred models a month in, in New York in one one of the offices, and and London would have been probably a third, if not more, of that. And we were doing a lot of printing. But they were extraordinarily expensive. The process was you upload your model to our, our intranet, and then uh, it gets analyzed and see what the cost is going to be. And then is it going to take you know 18 hours or 22 hours? And it was a daunting process, and the cost was at times extraordinary. It, it, the, the, if it was a complex model that was going to take a long time, it, it really was the cost was almost prohibitive. And in some cases, it, it, those days of the you know thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollar model, you know, being shipped to Abu Dhabi and then it's broken, I, and and it, it happened. It, it, Heartbreaking. Yes, yeah, awful. Yeah. It's awful. We we did all of our research, all of our exploration. Again, this is New York and London. We have a, a wonderful makerspace both in New York and and in London, and we found the Ultimaker a series of machines that really fit our our needs is really fit, uh, you know, K- KPF's goals, and, and and definitely my kind of aspiration for this this kind of high quality, fast, stable product. But to your to your question, the cost was so was so much less than we were paying. I think people were actually quite startled, and maybe actually couldn't believe it because it went from 
hundreds of dollars to t- not even tens of dollars, less than into a dollar or five dollars, seven dollars. I mean, the same size model would be one tenth the price. And so once again, it broke down that barrier that that I had been pointing to, this disconnect, so to speak, between the 3D computer model and the physical model. How do we get that as smooth as possible as if printing a piece of paper? And to be honest, I think we finally have gotten to that point because, yes, the teams can print, they print themselves. They need to know what they're doing. So it's not, you know, maybe as easy as printing an 8 by 11 piece of paper, but they can print from from Rhino. We can print globally. We have a network uh, around the world of, of Ultimaker machines. And one can print anywhere if one, one wanted to. Ultimately, this goal that we've been looking for for you know twenty plus years, it's come together. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. One last question in that trajectory. So you have nine sites, and you have printers across a bunch of them. How has that been useful? to design projects, to have sort of standardized on yeah. some solutions and sure. uh, processes? Yeah, well, the use is really direct. It, since we do collaborate you know, among, among the offices, it also means that there's a lot of travel uh, among offices. So the advantage is we have a global set of standards, really just like our whole digital platform is, is a single unified standard, very important to me. And then 3D printing is the same. And so we're able to print really anywhere. I think the real practical use case to this point is being able to do a design, let's just say, in New York, get the models all sorted, get the models all straight, and then send them directly to, let's say, Shanghai, because the design partner and team will be on their way there, basically, so that we have models prepared once they arrive. But because of all the travel design teams do find themselves in our various offices for a week at a time, maybe two weeks at a time in some cases. And so having all the tools there to be able to print just as if they were in London or New York is is really, really vital. Well, thank you for joining me today. Uh, I really appreciate having you here on Talking Additive. Excellent. Thank you so much for the invitation, Matt. I really appreciate the time. Thanks again to Asley, James, Kobus, and Ross from KPF for sharing their insights into FFF 3D printing and the architecture industry. If you'd like to learn more about KPF, visit kpf.com for more details. Or maybe you happen to be lucky enough to currently be in one of the following cities of culture, wealth, and commerce. New York, Los Angeles, Sao Paulo, London, Paris, Madrid, Dusseldorf, Prague, Amsterdam, Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Singapore, Hong Kong, Bangkok, Seoul, and Tokyo. Look to the skyline and see what the structures there can teach you about KPF's design practice. We hope that you enjoyed our ninth episode for the Talking Additive podcast, 3D Printing in Architecture, Taking Design to New Levels. In two weeks, we return with episode 10, the final episode of Talking Additive Season 1. We have a thrilling treat to wrap up Season 1, Mary Louisa of Schubert, to talk about their innovative strategies for re-examining approaches to packaging machine design, collaborations with their customers, and a masterclass in what is possible with FFF 3D printing and distributed manufacturing. We explore these topics and more on Talking Additive. Enjoy our show? Subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. And we'd appreciate it if you would post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. 
Join the conversation about additive manufacturing by subscribing today at TalkingAdditive.com. Thanks again to Asley, James, Kobus, and Ross for joining us for this episode. Thanks also to series producer Hanna Takini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos, and a thank you to Brian Scary and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbird's Custom Music and Sound for the music and episode sound mix. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you again to our listeners. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.